Hey, uh, uh, I want to, uh, today we are, are entering into a new series uh, in 1 John. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 John. And my iPad did not charge last night, so it could be a short sermon. Uh, but uh, 1 John was written by a man named John. Whoa. Ground shaking, right? John was a, uh, wrote about five books of the New Testament. Uh, four of them are named John. He was really good at titling things, uh, didn't know what to do it. So John, John, and there's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, because why not? It's the third one. And then he wrote this crazy book in the back of the Bible that we're all afraid of called Revelation, which is really a fun book. But John was born about 10 years after Jesus was born. Some would say it's about 10 to 15 years. When Jesus entered his ministry, it's thought that John was probably 18 or 19 years old. Uh, John had a brother. His name was James. James wrote a book in the Bible called? James. James. Titles. I tell you what. Uh, He had a dad named Zebedee, whose name meant thunder. And so, I mean, that's awesome. If you're going to get a dog name or a son's name, go with Zebedee because it's thunder. Okay, that's great. There's a whole song written to you from another band named ACDC. Zebedee was a fisherman. Uh, which meant that John and James were growing up to learn the father's trade of being fishermen. This would mean that they would fish all night and fix nets all day. Sometimes they caught things, but from what we see in scriptures, they were really bad fishermen. Jesus is always bailing them out, giving them fish to catch, right? And so John was a fisherman. He mended nets all day. Uh, it, it was an elaborate, a delicate process where they'd bring the nets in and they would untangle them and, and they would make them so they wouldn't break. Sometimes if they were broken, they would tie better knots and make it so the nets can uh, be as wide and as big as possible so they have the best chance for catching fish. It was tedious. It was delicate. It was long. It was like an Excel sheet for those of us who don't do Excel. Probably terrible. Okay? That's what John's day consisted of. Fishing mending nets, and then going to bed and doing the same thing the next day, all day, every day. During John's life, his his growing up, he probably would have heard of Jesus. Their towns, they weren't exactly close, but they weren't very far. But Jesus started to make a name for himself. And as John was entering the late teens and doing his, his family business, some of John's associates had a very unique encounter with Jesus. He, he looked at them and he said, hey, come, come and follow, follow me. And one day, we read about it in Matthew and in, in other Gospels, uh, John and his brother are mending their nets and their business associates, Simon, uh, who's later called Peter, and his brother named Andrew, also fisherman, whose success of the fishing game was kind of suspect, uh, were also mending their nets. And Jesus walks up to them and he says, come on, I'll make you fishers of men. And then sooner after that, that same day, Jesus walks over to James and John and their father, Thunder, and says, uh, follow me. And it was a big call. It, it wasn't just a call to like follow him to the grocery store or anything like that. It was a follow me, which in those days meant come and become just like me. Follow me so you can be like me. And so John's faced with this kind of dilemma. Do I stay here mending nets and fishing all night? I'm tired, I'm exhausted. Or do I follow this guy, which I've heard about? Some people are saying this guy's the Messiah. Some people are saying he's he's the one we've all been waiting for. And John made a no-brainer decision. 
I, I understand this. Uh, one day I was working construction in my dad's business and I was terrible at it and I did not like it. I hurt myself more than I built things. Uh, and one day I got a job, a job offer to go do something else. It didn't take long. I made that decision. John made the same decision. It's time to leave the fishing game and go follow Jesus. And nothing from that day forward would ever be the same for John. John would find out what it was like to follow Jesus. He would find out who Jesus was. He would see some things that nobody else would ever see. In John, or in Jesus, John started to see a future that was unlike anything else that he'd ever seen. And the future for in Jesus was bright. This was an offer he couldn't refuse. And the more he followed Jesus, the more he realized that this life that Jesus offered is better than any other life that could ever be found. And this is what John starts to write about. This is why John starts writing in all of his books with the zeal and passion. Follow Jesus and you will find life, life to the fullest. Abide in Christ, he says in his gospel, and you will have fruit. All of these things show John's passion for following Jesus. Now fast forward 60 so years, or we, we don't really know how old he was, but John has been a pastor for many years uh, he's, he's in charge of these churches of Ephesus, Thyatira, Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergathum, the seven churches that are listed in, in Revelation. I thought I could memorize them, and I thought I had them. Oh, here we go. Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Ephesus. These are John's churches, and he loved them. He was responsible for them. He, he cared for them. He watched over. He wasn't just an apostle. Who, who, saw, who saw Jesus, who had the name and the title, he was their friend and their pastor. In fact, he refers to these churches as dear children because he sees them as their, his kids. He loves them like a father loves their children. So when you read the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and even the first part of Revelation, you see this passion that he had for these people. And he writes these letters, and, and the way letters worked back then, he didn't write one for each of the seven churches. He wrote one, let's say it started in Ephesus, that's where Paul lives, or John lives, and he, he, he gives them here, and then it gets passed around seven times. It's, it's kind of like a chain letter, and it goes to all of them. So he writes these letters knowing that there's some issues taking place in their church. There's some, some competing philosophies of that day that are starting to creep in. And there were a lot of philosophies of that day. Stoicism, Gnosticism, Desoticism, uh, all the other schisms started to come in. And they were drawing people away from the church. And the church was starting to crumble. And John knew that this wasn't right. That, and, and the cause of this, the cause of their problems, the cause of them starting to fade away, was that they were taking their eyes off Christ, but also... They were incorporating with Jesus this, these other thoughts of doceticism, which denied that Jesus was ever human and said he was just a spiritual being that kind of floated along the earth, didn't really have flesh or denied his fleshly abilities. And Gnosticism, which meant essentially the brand of Gnosticism that was here that day was we don't believe in sin. And so John starts writing these letters, and, and, and he's trying to tediously, meticulously, like a fisherman does, mend the nets of their hearts, mend these churches back together because they're in so much disrepair. The ones who had left had made these spectacular claims, and they were, lo uh, lo and they were losing more people. 
They claimed that they knew God more distinctly. They had a special knowledge that, that, uh, that, that took them away and it, it started to water down their faith. They also claimed that this Christian message that the apostles were teaching was false. And so John writes these letters to bring them back. He wants to remind them of who Jesus is. John had experienced Jesus, and he knows everything that they're saying about Jesus is categorically untrue. How can he say that? He knew Jesus. He followed Jesus. John experienced Jesus. He, he spent years with them. He'd seen the miracles. He, he was present at the cross. When Jesus says to the disciple named John, uh, behold your mother, behold your son, he's talking to John that day. John was the first person to get to the tomb. He makes special uh, mention of that. He was faster than Peter. I would write that down. He was the one that Jesus loved. Peter was just Peter. And so there's this little sibling rivalry happening here. Probably goes back to their fishing days. I'm a better fisherman than you. I'm faster than you. I got there first. Jesus liked me more. He witnessed Jesus with his own eyes. He touched Jesus with his own hands. John knew that he had to correct these lies about Jesus because they were taking people away from the truth. And so he wrote this letter to remind them, like a loving father does, to come back to the truth before they went too far, before they went too far away. And so in 1 John chapter 1, what we're, we're going to look at all chapter 1. We're going to get a little bit into chapter 2 because that's where the thought finishes. But John reminds people of this life that we see in Jesus. And there's an invitation there. Along with the invitation comes a warning, an obstacle. That if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to have this life that Jesus want, that wants you to have, this life that Jesus offers, you're going to have to admit some things. And so first, I want to look at this invitation. If you have your Bibles, 1 John, it's in the back. So if you open up and you see Matthew, turn right. It'll be towards the end. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So if you want to find Revelation and go that way, you can. But the first verse says this. That which was from the beginning. John had this thing with starting things at the beginning, which is wonderful. If he liked Exodus like me, he would start everything in Exodus. But apparently he liked Genesis because he goes right back to the very start. In John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Here he repeats himself. He says, that which was from the beginning. Then he continues, that which we have heard. And when he says we, he's talking about him and the apostles. This John is writing as the last remaining apostle. And so he's saying, hey, we all saw this, the apostles, the disciples. We noticed this, not only us, but about 500 other people saw this too. And so we saw this, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our own eyes, which we had looked at with our own hands, which we have touched this is proclaiming the word, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we've seen it, we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and he has appeared in us. There's a lot there. Paul is, or John, John, I'm gonna get them confused all day. John is reminding them that, hey, he was there and he can't stand idly by and let them tell lies about someone who, they, who he knows is completely untrue. And so in these first few verses, John, got it right, starts telling them the truth. Jesus was from the beginning. 
Jesus was the one who was present with the Father. It also can mean that from the very outset of Jesus' ministry, I was there. We were there. We saw it. We heard him as the next thing. We heard him laugh. We heard him cry. We heard him teach. We know what his voice sounded like, which have you ever thought of what Jesus' voice might sound like? I really hope it's a strong, powerful voice. I mean, that's, that's just me, right? We heard him. We heard, we know what he sounded like. We know what it sounded like when he looked at somebody and said, you're healed. We know what his voice is. And he says, we saw him with our own eyes. With our eyes, we saw them as if you can see him from anything else. We saw that with these things, I saw him. I saw him walk. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't microdosing mushrooms. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't an imaginative figure. It was real. We saw him. Then it says he looked upon him, which you might think, that sounds a lot like saw him. No, no, it's different. The word looked is the word we examined him. We looked at him from all angles. It's different from just seeing Jesus. We took a closer look. And then he says, we touched him. We put our hands on him. At the Last Supper, John leaned against Jesus. It was a a backrest kind of thing because they were all on one side of the table. We leaned against him. We hugged Jesus. They probably high-fived or fist-bumped or whatever the equivalent was to that when you did something awesome. In Jesus, they saw him. They touched him. They shook him awake when he was on the boat. They probably helped him get in the boat when he was walking on the water. Why is this important? Because to a church that is denying the very existence of Christ, John stands up as a witness and goes, nope, you're all wrong. And I'm not going let to you, let you get by with saying this. I saw him, and he lists all the senses except for taste, because I don't think he licked them at all. <laughs> I've seen him with my senses. I've experienced Jesus. And these false teachings that are circulating around these churches in that day are taking away from the truth, and they're taking people away from the truth, and Jesus is losing its power because of these lies. And at the very end, John uses this word, word of life. It's, it's a weird title, but in this, John means that everything we've experienced about Jesus, everything we've seen, heard, saw, touched, everything leads to life. The life that John is, is referring to is this life as life was intended to be. Life as Adam and Eve had it before Genesis chapter 3. In Jesus was life as God scripted it to be like. This is the life that we all wanted. And it was there and it was available for anyone who wanted to take it. It wasn't just limited to him and his friends and the apostles. It wasn't limited to the only certain sect of people. It was for everyone. And you could have this life if you choose it. We saw it. We heard it. We expected, we experienced it. We were witnesses to it. And then we were transformed by it. It's a lot in those verses. We can spend two weeks picking apart the Greek that, Paul, that John uses. Did it again? That John uses. And he is just getting down to the nitty gritty. Jesus is real. And we need to follow him. If we want life that every single one of us desires deep down, it's only found in Christ. And then Dylan, I might need that backup iPad if you're around. Then he says in verse 3, If we proclaim to you that that which we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, we write this to make our joy complete. This is the invitation. We've seen it, 
and we want you to be a part of it. We don't want you to miss this. And we want you to, make, we want you to experience this because we've, we've experienced his beauty, we've been captured by it, and we want you to experience this too. It's kind of like uh, Carrie and I went to a restaurant and we both order different things. I tend to order red meat and she orders like fish or chicken. That's fine. And, and, but when it gets to the dessert, we usually order one of the same or two differently if we're feeling splurgy. And we'll take a bite and the first thing we say is, oh man, you gotta try this. It's awesome. And sometimes I don't say a thing because I want it all to myself. Like, no, I don't want to share this at all. And so, but it's like, no, you have to try this. You need to experience this because this is the best whatever it is that I've ever had. And so this is the same thing John's doing. The, in, in Psalms it says, taste and see that God is good. And John has tasted and seen and he wants you to have a bite. He wants you to experience. He says, you can't go on living your life without experiencing what Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's relevant to us because I think that the Jesus in our culture has been watered down so many ways that we don't even recognize who Jesus is. And so we come, maybe, maybe we don't deny Jesus' existence as a human being, maybe, maybe some do, and, 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 and that's something to be discussed about, but we, we've chased after so many things that we call Jesus that don't even look like Jesus. We've associated Jesus with people and places, We've associated Jesus with movements that he would have never have a part of. We say Jesus agrees with this political figure or that political figure or this person or that person, and he doesn't. And so we've distorted Jesus. So all of this is a call to us. Let's get back to who Jesus was, actually was. Let's rediscover Jesus for who Jesus says he is, for who scriptures say he is, not for who some podcast or author or politician says that Jesus is, but let's get back to the real Jesus. This is the invitation. If you want to find life, it's only found in Christ. But with this invitation is a tension. Make my joy complete, John says. Almost said Paul. Make my joy complete. Follow him. Take a bite of this. Taste this. Experience this invitation. Accept it. Let it permeate into your life. Let it change you like it has changed me. And now that you have this invitation, let me tell you the one thing that's keeping you away. Because there is one thing. And so John uh, begins to take playbooks out of their own, out of the uh, Docetics and the Gnostics and, and all the other people. He starts to uh, take their words and spin them and use their words against them. This is a playbook from Paul, and I meant to say Paul this time. Paul uses this. Paul takes uh, philosophies from, uh, you see it in Acts 17 in Mars Hill where he's at the unknown God and he, he agrees with them. I, agree, I, I see the good things that you are saying and I see where you're missing it. And so he, he agrees with them. He takes a page out of their own playbook and, and makes them make, finds a common ground. He does this in Philippians 2. He uses a, an old hymn that was sang about Caesar and ties it to Christ. And says, yeah, yeah, I know this song, but you're misplaced calling it Caesar. I'm going to call it Jesus. And, and we're going to make this the kenosis passage about Jesus becoming flesh and blood and moving into our neighborhood. John does the same thing here. He says this in verse 5. The message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is what they would have agreed upon. And we agree with this, right? God is light and in God there is no darkness. The Gnostics agreed with this. For them, light was this premier metaphor of God in reality. Light, the beauty of light. The Gnostics, uh, first century, they, they, they promoted this idea of enlightenment. 
Plato used the, the light imagery uh, to form this conceptual basis of Near Eastern dualism. And if you know what that means, cool, we'll talk about it later. But Plato used this. Philo said God is light, but not light only, but the archetype, uh, archetype of every other light, or rather more ancient and higher than any other archetype of light. And so they all agree, God is light. Plato, figure, Philo, all of these people, God is light. And so John's like, yeah, 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 I'm with you on this. God is pure light, but he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. The beautiful thing about light that John is getting to is light isn't just light that shines and the string lights and all of these. Light has this thing of exposing darkness. Uh, Light shows you where you're wrong. And this is where they started to diverge paths. It's not speculation for John to say this. He's, he, he, he actually, he believes it, and it's true here. God stands in direct contrast to darkness, evil, sin, and imperfection. In other words, John takes their own belief and then uses it as a challenge. And then he makes these six statements. And we can look at them, and they didn't really start popping to me until a couple days ago where you start to look at it. And John makes six if statements. Three of them are positive. Three of them are negative. So we'll start with the the negative. He starts with the negative in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Because how can you walk in darkness and be following God who is light, right? If you're walking in darkness, you're not around God. Then it switches to a positive. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from sin. Positive, right? Negative, positive. Negative claim. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? We can agree with this? Yes. Okay. If positive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will and to forgive our sins and purify us from all right, unrighteousness. Positive. Negative. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Negative. Negative. Positive. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John is getting pretty tedious here in his language. He's getting, he's meticulous. He's unraveling a very tangled net and he's doing it one thread at a time. Judah came to me the other day with a knot. I hate knots and this one was a doozy. It took a long time to get in there and find the loose string and then pull it. I used my teeth, I used needle nose pliers, I used a screwdriver, but finally I started to untangle it. This is what John's doing. He's untangling the lies that they've been living by that have taken them away from Jesus in order to bring them back to Jesus. Individuals in John's day claim to have an intimate walk with God, yet they also claim this, that their lives were unstained by sin. How many of you think you're perfect? Good. These people thought they, weren't per- they were perfect. Not only this, they didn't think that they had a sin issue. They had said, we've never sinned to begin with. That's a bold claim. They've never sinned. The issue wasn't a simple disagreement over whether or not this little tiny thing over here is sin or not. That wasn't the problem. The issue went far deeper than that. 
had said, is there even sin at all? Or is it just kind of our little benign rules that we make up about life? Is there sin even to our existence? See, they believed that God was so separate from the universe, that God was so separate from us, that nothing about God could ever come into our reality. That Jesus would have never become human. That sin nature was just a figment of our imagination. That none of this was what, what, what was ever a problem. God was so holy and God was so pure. God was such a bright light that he would never enter in existence. This made it impossible for them to believe that Jesus was a human. And then the results were this. If God is so removed from our world, if his existence is so unaffected by what we do, then what we do doesn't really matter at all. Earthly things And heavenly things exist in different spheres and they never touch each other. So sin, it's not an issue. It's not just that we're sinless. There's just no such thing as sin. So what you do is what you do and that's fine for you. What I do is what I do and that's fine for me. We all go along our merry way. Today we might call it relativism. We might call it universalism. We might call it another ism that I'm forgetting to mention right now. We have these thoughts in our day to day, and this is a problem. It's a problem for John, and it's a problem for us. And John says, you can't live this way. You can't call yourself a Christian. You can't be a Christian without coming to this first step of what it means to be a Christian. We've sinned. Sin is any thought leading to an action that is in direct contrast to the will of God. Simple definition for you. That is what sin is. And where there is sin, there is darkness. And John uses this word walk and by the way they lived. It wasn't just one-time things. John's talking about walking or their way of life. In the Greek, it's the word perpeteo. It's a fun one. You want to say it? Perpeteo. In perpetual sin is what he's getting at. You're living this life in perpetual sin. You're walking with this determination in you that I'm going to sin. In Genesis 4, we read the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain is, is pretty, pretty upset. And, and he's going to go out and kill his brother. And then there's a phrase that's used. And God is confronting him and says, hey, be careful now. Sin is crouching at your door and you're going to walk right into it and you're going to in on purpose continue it. And what this was leading to for Cain, what this is leading to for in, in the book of First John is this dishonest spirituality that led to a powerless church. And this is John's warning to us. When we accept sin as the norm, it robs the church of its power. If we deny sin's existence in the presence of our own lives, we become motivated by other things rather than the worship of God. And for this church, when they deny sin, they deny that they, they're not worshiping God anymore. They're worshiping themselves because they become the highest authority of everything. They can choose what's right or wrong. God has no room in their life. Christ and the transformation that Christ brings has no room in their life. They have been started to worship other things, not God. When we ignore sin, we miss the healing power of grace and forgiveness, which is at the center of Christ's message. When we accept sin as the norm, Christ leaves the church. 
Uh, don't believe me. Okay, go to Ezekiel. When you're in Ezekiel, you'll see the section where Ezekiel is transported and he's looking into the temple and he sees that they've accepted as a norm. Ezekiel's a wild book. I recommend it. Uh, it, it they've accepted as a norm this thought of, of worshiping at astropoles or worshiping Baal. And not only in their cities and in their home, in the very temple of the Lord, they were doing these things. And they accepted it as like, ah, oh, it's normal. It's just how they worship. Yeah, it's good. Whatever. Let them go. It's not hurting me. It's not hurting them. It's not hurting you unless you think it is. Then you're wrong. And then Ezekiel has this vision. The next chapter you turn and, and you see the, the presence of the Lord, which is this wild chariot that he describes leaving the temple. And then it, it gets further and further away. The presence of the Lord now goes outside the city. God is no longer in Jerusalem. And then the presence of the Lord disappears. God, God has left the building. Why? God can't be present in darkness. Light and darkness don't mix. And there's not a simple third way here. Sometimes sin is sin. And we love to find the third way. Third way is a beautiful thing. And we use it way too much to justify improper behavior. This is John's warning. The two can't coexist. And when we do, the power of the Lord will leave you, it will leave the church. Some of us have this problem, like, yeah, I, I, I really want God's life to, to breathe into me. I really want to experience everything he has for me. But I'm not willing to confront the sin in my life. God wants to, all that too. That invitation for you to experience him is real, and it's there, and he wants you to experience his life. But you have to be honest with yourself about some things first. This is the message of the first few chapters of the book of, of Revelation as well. The seven churches that, that John is responsible for, he writes to them. And in the first two or three chapters of Revelation, uh, he, he issues them a warning. Jesus is walking around and he's knocking on doors. And, and he says to them, hey, I've seen what you're doing. I know what you did last summer. Bad movie. I know what you're up to. I've seen your deeds in all the seven churches. It says that line. I've seen your deeds. You've accepted the way of the Nicolaitans. You are going the way of Jezebel. You are doing this. Idolatry is here. You're gossipers, you're slanderers, you're adulterers. He just goes down the line. And Jesus is pointing that out. And in every single one of them, there's a warning. In Ephesus, it, it says it purely. Repent. Deal with it. Or the consequence is this. If you ignore this, the lampstand that sits inside your church that gives light to everything, the power and presence of Christ will be removed. First John's not a happy letter. <laughs> we were hoping it was going to be this, this nice, yeah, let's all get together and hug. No, 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 no. We will, it gets to that. But first we gotta take care of some housekeeping here. You can't make accommodations for sin. You can't ignore it. You can't celebrate it. You can't say that's just how we are. That's their truth. This is my truth. No, there is the truth. John's warning to them was that this punishment that God is going to remove their lampstand and in doing so, the whole light was going to leave them in utter darkness. But here's the deal. None of those churches really figured it out. They kept accommodating. Because it's easier to change your mind about a sin than it is to actually address it. It's easier to accommodate something than to stop practicing it. It's easier to celebrate greed than it is to be generous. It's easier to justify gossip than to find something better to talk about. 
It's easier to not have to change yourself in order to follow Jesus. It's easier to stay just the way you are and skip out on sanctification, skip out on the transformation that Jesus offers you. After all, this is what we hear. Jesus loves me just the way I am, so why would I ever have to change to begin with? Yes, Jesus loves you the way you are, but he doesn't want you to stay like that. And in doing so, we think we're following Jesus because we're all about grace, we're all about forgiveness, which are beautiful and good But forgiveness and grace from what? If you ignore sin, you take the power of grace and forgiveness away. Instead of confronting sin, we've grown accustomed to it. And growing accustomed to it, we've become slaves to it. It's kind of like owning a cat. Let that one sit in for a sec. You own a cat, you think you have a great pet. I I don't own cats. Pretty soon that cat owns you, right? Cat owners? Yep. Patrick, does your cat own you? He's dead. (laughs) He took care of the sin. All right. Pretty soon, your pet owns you. Your cat owns you. Your dog owns you. You don't own the dog. You don't own the cat. It's mostly cats. Dogs are better. But this is what sin does. You think you can live with it. Oh, it's not that bad. Whatever. No, no, no. Pretty soon that sin festers and grows and it becomes a cancer and it takes up your entire life and it pulls you away from the life that God is wanting you to live. We know what's right. Most of the time we know what's sin and what's not sin. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, there's this little tug in you that goes, yes, that's not right. I need to run away from it. But here's the deal. We just don't want to which is the problem that John is addressing here. My iPad went dead. It's not that he doesn't want to. I gotta get this open again or else we're gonna be here for a long time. It's not that 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 sin wasn't a problem. They just didn't want to and this is wrong. (laughs) Great. I got the Bible. I just don't have my notes. It's fine. We'll, We'll work it out. Do you have pages on an iPad, the document that I sent you? We'll stall, I think. Oh, I did it wrong. I did it wrong. There we go. Is this when you're going to call me uh, old? So sin begins to own us. It begin, we, become to, we start to be a, a, a slave to sin because it's easier to keep going the way we were than to ever, ever change our lives. And so John's writing for this. Take care of the sin in your life. Take care of the sin that is easily entangling you, as, as the writer of Hebrews says. And as the followers of Jesus, we need to hear this message loud and clear. We've taken sin far too lightly. We've accepted it. We've become slaves to it. It's not just how we feel about sin. It's how God feels about sin. How do we then approach sin? Uh, Think of it this way. Another animal reference. Say you're walking around the corner and and you come around this and uh, and you see uh, everyone at the count of three say the animal that they would see that would scare the tar out of them. One, two, Two, three. Cats. What'd y'all say? A rhino? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Bears, okay. Any spiders? Yeah, spiders. Spiders in my house get a lot of fanfare. Uh, they, uh, they, they're going to kill us one of these days by the reactions. Say you're walking around the corner and, and you see this said animal, okay? What would you do? What? Depend, the animal that scares you, what would you do? Would you run? Yes. If you saw an angry rhinoceros, you would run. If, if my son Judah saw a spider, he would run. If, if I saw a roaring lion right there, I would run. This is what John is saying our reaction to sin should be. Run from it. Don't give it any leeway in your life. Get rid of it. Stop it. Run away. On the contrary. And then he's saying this. So this is how we should respond to sin. And then if you look on the other side. Now, say you're, running, you're walking down the street because who wants to go running? You're walking down the street again and you see a friend that you haven't seen in years and this is a dear friend of yours. What do you do? You hug them. You run to them. Uh, some of you might go, oh, there they are. <laughs> cool. Uh, introverts, right? This is what John is, this is the contrast that John is saying. Look, we have this invitation to Jesus and this life that he's offering us. It's better than anything you've ever experienced. Make our joy complete. Run that way. Or you can keep going on in your life and you can run towards this angry beast that you might think is nice and cuddly, but Peter tells us that sin is like a roaring lion and it is going to devour you eventually. Which one will you choose? This is what John is getting at in, in these first few chapters. Sin is something that we need to take seriously. He's not suggesting that we're perfect. Not at all. None of us are. We all sin. Some of you, some of you all sinned walking up the door. I saw you. Some of us sinned in the driveway. Some of us have sinned in the last 10 minutes. Sin is something that we will do. That's not what John is talking about here. John is saying, stop, stop accepting that sin as normal. Stop accepting it as just a way of life. Stop saying that it's right when it's not. Stop saying that it's, it's okay to view sex in the way that you want to view sex when God is very clear how sex should be said. Stop saying that it's okay to lie. If it's okay to lie just a little bit, no, it's not. It's a sin. Run from it. Instead of accepting sin as normal, what would it look like if the church, this means you and I, started addressing sin for what it actually is? Dangerous. A poison that will kill anything that we're trying to do. What if we allowed the light of Christ to expose in our hearts those areas of sin that we all have what if we allowed it to expose us and then we dealt with it as possible, as soon as possible? Uh, my boys found flashlights the other day and, and they were flashlights that we brought out when we had our power outage. And what they do is they like to go in one of the bedrooms and close everything and then they have the flashlight and then they go on their own little scavenger hunts. They, they, uh, Judah says he wants to go find dark. I, I don't understand it. But 
It's here. And, and so, but what the light does is it exposes the areas of darkness to light and then they can operate accordingly because they've seen the right way to go and they can stop going the other way. This is what Jesus is offering us. Stop with the sin. And so what if we allowed it, allowed Jesus to convict you instead of taking that thing and going, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to change. It's easier if we don't. What if we allowed it in Jesus to take our sin? And this is the beauty of what John says. He goes, and he's proving his point using their own arguments. Look, we all sin. You can't deny that we all sin. If you do, you make God out a liar. Why? Because God says you've sinned. And if you lie, you're sinning. Because why? Lying is sinning. Then he says this in chapter 2. My dear children, I write to you this, that you will not sin. But if anyone does, because we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who never sinned. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins for the whole world. The whole world has sinned. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's this beauty that Jesus offers us of confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us from those sins. And so today, as we take inventory in our lives, what are the areas of sin that we're all holding on to? That we're not ready to give up. And what if this area of sin is, is something that Jesus has been sitting at your door going, hey, I want to take this from you. You don't have to carry that anymore. I want you to accept this invitation to follow me. And the first thing you have to do, the first thing that we need to do to try this life that Jesus offers is to say, yes, that's a sin. Please forgive me. This is the beauty of confession. Confession is not this magic thing that we say the right words. All confession is is agreeing with God that we've missed his standard. We've messed up. We've missed it. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And the beauty of Jesus, the word of life, the one that John has seen and touched and, and heard and examined will take that sin from us and put it on the cross and put his hand in front of it and nail it to his, the cross behind his hand and it's gone forever. We no longer have to worry about it anymore. This is the beauty of redemption. This is the beauty of Jesus. And it's offered to you today. You want to live in the power of Christ? Deal with the sin. We want the church to be a place of healing and grace and hope and hospitality. Deal with the sin. Stop calling sin okay just because the government says it's okay, just because culture says it's okay. Stop calling it okay. Governments just say what's allowed. God says what's right. God says this isn't right. Sin's not right. So as you came in, there was a little uh, piece of paper on your seat. Um, Stephen, can you grab some pens from the back? Uh, we're going to take some time. And we're going to, this is a chance for you. Maybe there's something in your life that you're like, you know what? I, I need to get this off of me. I've been carrying around this sin, this thought. I've been calling it right when I know it's absolutely wrong. I've been saying it's good when I know it's absolutely bad. 
Today I want to take the opportunity as, as you ponder within yourself, what is that thing? And on that paper that you're most likely sitting on, or my son used it to draw and make an airplane, so there you go, plants versus zombies probably, uh, write down. I'm not going to read it. Uh, it's not for me to know. This is between you and the Lord. What is something that it's time for you to agree with him about? You're saying, I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of accepting this sin as a norm, and I'm ready to be transformed again. I'm ready to jump back to following you instead of following these other things. Confession isn't meant to make you feel bad about yourself. Confession is meant to offer this. Oh, I feel better now. Uh, for 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves us without regret. This is the beauty of confession. This is the beauty of repentance is that regret goes away. It's like you've been holding something against your friend for so long and you've kept having to say it, but you keep not saying it and it just wears on you. What if you actually said this and said, yes, I was wrong? The amount of relief you have in that is what leads to life. And so as Dylan comes up and, and, and plays something music-wise, um, there's communion over here on the right. There's baskets by the candles. As you take an inventory and as you write down, the, the act I want you to take is you're bringing your sins to the cross, to the foot of the cross, where Jesus dealt with your sin once and for all, as Hebrews 4 says. You put it in the basket where he takes it and wipes it clean, and then you enjoy communion with Christ at the foot of the cross without that sin hindering your relationship any longer. So we'll take some time. Again, we're not going to read your card. You don't have to write it in a weird coded language. It's between you and God. When we're done, I'm going to throw them away. It's just an act of you repenting and me too confessing the areas of sin and brokenness with the intention of living a new life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you we find grace. In you we find the, the, the advocate in the presence of the Father who pleads our case, who covers our sin, who justifies it so that God doesn't see us by our sins any longer. Instead, he sees the perfect image of Jesus. And so, Lord, we come to you and ask for forgiveness. And we ask for grace. And we lay these sins at your feet. Lord, we know that some of these sins are going to take some time to stop doing. Habits take a long time to get rid of. And some of these sins are habitual. And so, Lord, we, we begin the process today. Where we need help, let us ask for help. Where we need prayer, let us ask for prayer because you wish that we do not live by sin anymore. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness that you will give to each one of us. In your name we pray.